0: Once upon a time, there was a husband and a wife, and they were talking about how great it would be to to go to Israel, to go to the Holy Land, and uh, see all the fantastic sights and walk where Jesus walked. And as they were discussing it, the husband said, wouldn't it be amazing to to go to the top of Mount Sinai and to shout the Ten Commandments from from the top of Mount Sinai? And the wife said, you know, that, that would be amazing, hon, but maybe it would be better if we just stayed home and kept them. God brought his people to the top of Mount Sinai. Moses climbed Mount Sinai, and he met with God. And that was great, but it would have been better if the Israelites had kept the Ten Commandments that God gave them. Now, of course, they wanted to do that. They said that they would do that. They said, Moses, go and listen to everything that God has to say and and bring it back, and we will do them. That's what they said. And God responded, and he said, Oh, that they had such a heart within them. God recognized that the failure was not with his law, that the law would serve a purpose. It would point Israel to the solution for their sin. But he knew that their hearts were sinful and that they lacked the capacity to fully keep the law. Jeremy has said it many times before when he's talking about the law. What was the law for? What was its purpose? And he said that the the purpose of the law is to reveal sin, Right? It's a measuring stick. Here's God's standard. Here's you. I don't know about you. When I read the Old Testament, sometimes I sort of go through the laws and the list and I go, oh, I've done that and oh, I haven't done that. Well, I used to do that, but I don't do that anymore. Um, but what it shows is that I failed, it reveals my sin. Um, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It reveals sin, and it points us to Christ, the solution for our sin. In a nutshell, that's what the law does. There's uh, a great couple of panels from a, uh, a Deadpool comic. Deadpool's sitting there, and he's talking about he's going to go eliminate some bad guys. And his partner says, and he tells his partner, I'm going I'm to unalive them. And his partner says, you, you mean you're going to kill them? And he says, whoa, 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 let's not use the K word. Some churches are like that. Here's what I mean. I had a friend call me last year, and he talked about he had gone to visit a very large, very prominent church in the United States, and a guest speaker was there. And while the guest speaker was speaking, he said a bad word from the pulpit, the S word from the pulpit. I'm not going to say that out loud in church, but I'll spell it, S-I-E. And he was reprimanded by the church leadership team after that. They came to him and they said, you know what, Ah, we don't like to really use that word in the church. People, they react to it kind of strongly. They don't don't like when they hear it, so please don't say that. And as he was telling me this, I thought, how will people ever understand the good news if they don't know the bad news? The good news is that Jesus Christ came to die for us and save us from sin. The bad news is, we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't have the good news without the bad news. Uh, I picture, imagine if you were standing next to the ocean on a pier and you fell into the water and I dove in and I, I immediately dove in and I pushed you back up onto the pier and I pushed you on the ladder and I got you out of the water. And you, like, oh, okay, thanks, I guess, I appreciate it. Until you turn around and you see the sign, a giant sign that says shark infested waters right? Now suddenly, when you understand the danger, now you're hopefully a whole lot appreciative. Holy cow, thanks for doing that, Mike. Thanks for diving into shark-infested waters and saving my life. So if you don't understand the depths of the sin and what it is you're being saved from, you're not going to understand the good news. David, who wrote so many of the Psalms, he said, he put it this way, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, sin is a human problem of the heart that affects every single person. Now, I'm not gonna get into a super deep dive on the doctrine of original sin. I'll leave that for Jeremy or Chad or somebody else much more qualified than me. But the fact is, we're born sinners. Uh, My Atlanta have their beautiful little girl, Sayla, here. And she's so cute. and She's just precious and perfect. And I hate to be the one to break it to you guys, but Jesus sinner. And if you haven't found out already, you will. Um, so, have you ever bitten into an apple only discover that there's actually a worm inside of the apple? I used to see it all the time. I see it in cartoons and whatever. But I don't know if you've ever anyone actually done that. Probably you thought that the worm got into that apple by crawling into the apple from the outside and going in. And that's typically not how it gets there. Scientists tell us that typically something lays an egg in the bud, in the flower, when the tree is still flowering and that sits there and then when the fruit grows that worm is already inside of it and it burrows from the inside out. That's how it is with humanity, right? We're essentially rotten to the core. We've all been stained from birth by sin, and we have a sin nature. We're sinners first by nature and then by choice. We correspond and we cooperate with that sinful nature and its impulses. So the law sets the standard, and it points us to the solution. The law of Moses is a behavior modifier, okay? That's all it can do. It can change behavior, but it never rectifies character. The solution, Christ, is the only thing that can do that was a man. He had a dream one time. He dreamed that he was up in Saint he- uh, uh, in heaven, and St. Peter was showing him around heaven. And they, as he went from room to room, he saw these, looked like clocks all over the wall, and he, there were names written underneath each of the clocks. And they were all set at different times, and some of them were running faster, and some were running slower. And he asked St. Peter about it, and St. Peter said, oh, actually, those aren't clocks. Those are uh, synometers. Those are keeping track your sin and uh he kind of looked at them and he and he, he recognized some names that he knew and you know he saw some that were spinning pretty quickly and he goes yeah I, not surprising i know that guy um and then there'd be some he would go just really slowly ticking around and he'd say yeah i know that's a that's a very saintly individual i know the guy from church no wonder it's going so slow and he looks and he looks and he looks and he doesn't see his own clock he doesn't see his own centimeter and he asks saint peter he goes oh where's mine thinking to himself, oh, surely it's you know, ticking along at, min- at a minuscule pace. He says, Saint Peter, where's mine? And St. Peter says, oh, we, we put that in the basement. We're using it as a fan. That's what the law does. Okay, the law keeps track, and it sets the standard, and it says, here's God's bar of justice. Do this, don't do that. So we can look at it and sort of gauge where we are. But Paul made it very clear in Romans 3:20. He said, "By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by law is the knowledge of sin." So, in chapter 22, Exodus chapter 22, um, just like in Exodus 21, um, we're dealing with the particulars of the law, and in this uh, chapter in particular, we're dealing with the eighth commandment. Right? We got the commandments given to Israel in uh, Exodus 20, and the eighth commandment: "Thou shalt not steal." Now. If God just said that and everyone obeyed it, first of all, the Bible would be a lot shorter book than it is. Um, But we don't. And so this chapter answers the question, okay, well, what if somebody does steal? Then what? Then what do we do? So verse 1, chapter 22. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. Now, you'll remember... If you remember your New Testament, right, there was a man named Zacchaeus that met Jesus. Short little guy, right? Zacchaeus, I'm not going to sing the song. I'm not going to embarrass myself, right? Climbed up the sycamore tree to, uh, to see Jesus. And here Jesus was coming, and he wanted to see what the fuss was all about. So he climbed up the tree, and, and Jesus looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. And he came down, and when he was talking with Jesus, they got together, and he got convicted of the sin. And Zacchaeus said... To Jesus, Lord, half of what I own I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay them back fourfold. Well, this is what he's referring to. This is the verses that he's referring to. When you have wronged somebody, paying them back fourfold. That's the law that we're going to see over and over in these verses, the law of compensation. Now, typically here in America, if someone's caught stealing, they have to Restore what's stolen. That's called restitution, but the Bible here goes further, and we have compensation uh, You're going to restore what's stolen and you're going to pay back, you know four or five times depending on what it is And it made me think if we if that was the way things ran nowadays if you damage not just stole But you know damaged property and had to pay back four times if it was damaged while it was in your possession But might we not be a bit more careful when we borrow things from people and how we treat them and we're going to see there are similarities between this Old Testament law, and it actually lays the foundation for, you can see in it the seed, the if you'll pardon the pun, the genesis of a lot of our modern-day law. So verse 2, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defendant is not guilty of bloodshed. So homes back then right, in Old Testament times, what are they made out of? Clay, stone, bricks, mud, thatch, right? They were built that way and the roofs were thatched you know, with mud and straw on top. So uh, a thief, if he, wasn't, if he didn't want to go through the front door, he could dig through. And that's actually the verb here that translates when it says, if a thief is, if a thief is caught breaking in, the literal translation is digging through. So if a thief is caught breaking and literally digging through your house and you kill him, this verse says it's not considered murder. Why? Because if he has the intention and the wherewithal to dig through your house, first of all, he's probably got some sort of sharp metal instrument in his hand that he's used to do the digging with. It's nighttime. I can't see what's in his hand. He may not, if he's gone through all the trouble of digging through your wall, he's probably not going to stop there. And so to protect your property and in the interest of self-protection, The law said, that's fine. You can can take that person's life in self-defense. Verse 3 goes on to say, though, but if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. So here the law makes a difference between somebody breaking in at night and someone breaking into your house in the middle of the day. What's the difference? Why? Well, at night, like I said, there's no visibility. So you can't see as clearly. You can't see if he's holding something in his hand. It's also, it's harder to get help at night. Everyone's sleeping. The servants have gone home. They're not there. Uh, And so if it happens during the day, and you have visibility, and you can see what he has in his hand, you have other household members that you can use to subdue him. Jesus in Matthew 5, right, when he's talking about murder, he talks about murder starts in the heart, right? It's all about the intent. Everything has to do with the intent. So Christ's words there, if you apply them here, show that in the dark, there's a good chance that the homeowner acted without animosity or premeditation. But if he acts during the daytime, when it was that would be considered over the line. That would be revenge. And he was without excuse, and he'd be found and uh, decided that he, was, that he would be guilty of murder. Interesting, again, this distinction between night and day still exists today. In Massachusetts, for example, what most people call burglary, the technical name of that charge is breaking and entering at nighttime with the intent to commit a felony. Um, many states still have harsher penalties for burglaries that happen during the night than that happen during the day. And the rest of verse 3. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution, but if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. So if someone stole and they weren't able to make full restitution, they would be sold into slavery as an indentured servant. Nowadays, of course, you would go to jail. But remember, the Israelites are traveling through the desert in tents. There is no supermax. There's no jail. There's no jailer. There's no parole board. There's no Department of Corrections. So no jail to put them into. And again, looking at God's law, it's not about punishment. It's about making things right. Okay. If you can't pay what you stole then I'm gonna sell you to pay and work off and compensate the victim of the theft that way. And just for comparison, I wanna give you two things that are are often compared together. In ancient times, there was another code uh, of laws that actually predated Moses. It was in 1700 BC uh, in Babylon versus Moses, who was about 1300 BC. And that code was called the code of Hammurabi. And a lot of times people compare these two codes together Um, Hammurabi was a Babylonian ruler. He ruled for about 40 years in Babylon. And they have discovered in archaeology the detailed code that he created to uh, rule the kingdom with. And so in his law, when Hammurabi speaks about thieves in his law, demands that if a thief is caught stealing from the church or the state, they have to pay back 30-fold. But if it's a private citizen, then he'll pay back 10-fold. And if he cannot pay back what he has stolen, he's to be put to death. So the law of Moses, which I think sometimes today we look at and see and think of as very harsh, is actually one of the more merciful standards, um, particularly compared to other, co- other codes of law from the ancient world. I bring that up because I think sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they think, well, the Old Testament reveals a God of wrath and the New Testament reveals a God of love. And I think, Verses like this show that the Old Testament also reveals a God of love, a a God who's willing to be more merciful than those around him. He seeks to protect the innocent and impugn the guilty, but it's far less harsh. Verse 4, if the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. So again, we've got a distinction here. If If I steal the animal and I slaughter it or I get rid of it, I have to pay back four or fivefold, But if I still have the animal, I only have to pay back double. Why would that be? Apparently, as long as no final disposition of the stolen animal had been made, the thief retained the option of returning that animal to the lawful owner. So presumably that lighter penalty was a a mercy extended to the guilty on the possibility that it might have intended to restore that. Verse 5, if anyone grazes... Their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. All right, what do we say nowadays? Good fences make good neighbors. In those days boundaries were usually made by stones. Either a line of stones or a large stone or a few stones stacked on top of each other. That would mark your boundaries of your piece of land that you owned. Now I'm originally from the Midwest and out there we typically have rail fences or barbed wire fences. And when I moved out here to New England, one of the first things I noticed driving around here, and I, just, I, I absolutely love it, is the stone walls that you guys have out here. And You probably take them for granted if you're born and raised here, but they don't have those everywhere else. Um, and so I drive around and I, I see the stone walls and you can tell just by looking at some of them that they have been there for a very, very long time. Uh, I'm a hunter, so occasionally I find myself out in the woods miles from any nearby road and sometimes just smack dab in the middle of the woods, I'll come across a stone wall in the middle of nowhere. And I just think it's very cool to think that two, three, four hundred years ago, someone perhaps had a house nearby or that this marker still delineates, you know, this border to this property. So it was similar back then in biblical times. It's stones, you know, easily available construction material, and you could find it and stack it up and mark your boundary line. I am, and, and so what it says is, you know, if, if, the, if the animal crosses that boundary line, you know, you're responsible. Reminds me of a story, and actually, unlike most of my stories, this one is actually true. Uh, Jace knows this one. Um, it's a story about a, a guy named Peter and his cow. It happened right here in uh, Hampton about 35 years ago. Peter had a cow, and the cow kept leaving Peter's property and going over to the neighbor's property. And the neighbor kept grabbing a cow and dragging it back and bringing it back to Peter and cussing him out and telling him to keep your cow on your own property. And it uh, kept happening and kept happening. And finally, the, uh, the neighbor got sick of it, uh, and he went to the sheriff, and he swore to complain against them. And Peter found himself in uh, Hampton District Court in front of Judge Whitey Frazier, and The neighbor explained everything that was happening with the cow and it was coming, it was owner's property. He said, I've put up no trespassing signs. I've got them all right along my property line. I got all these no trespassing signs right there. And he makes his case and the judge turns and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you know what do you have to say for yourself? And Peter, absolutely straight faced, looks back at the judge and he says, Your Honor, he goes, try as I might, I have not been able to teach my cow how to read. Judge dismissed the case. True story. Not, no joke. So the problem is animals can't read. And so in the Old Testament, when an animal got to a boundary, if they saw green grass on the other side of that rock wall, they just kept munching. So in a sense, though, when that happens, you're allowing your animal to steal the food from you know, your neighbor's property. And so you were responsible for that boundary lines are still important. In New Hampshire, it's a a misdemeanor to move or alter or change uh, boundary markers. Verse 6, if a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. There's that word again, restitution. So picture it, it's summertime, and it's Israel, and you're out grazing your livestock, and you're cooking your bread on a stone like they did or maybe it's still uh, a season when it's chilly in the morning, you've got a fire going and you're not paying attention and the fire gets out of control, you're responsible for that. burns your neighbor's field and you've got to make restitution for those damages. You have to pay that back. Verse 7. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, The owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this, and no restitution is required. I find this fascinating. As a, particularly, again, as a, as, a, as a practicing attorney, I find this fascinating. Picture this. Your neighbor comes to you and he says, hey, I have this fully, perfectly restored 57 Chevy I just finished working on. I'm going on vacation. I don't want to leave it in my garage. Can I leave it in your garage while I go on vacation? And you say, sure. You take your car out and put his car in. And he's gone and he comes back and lo and behold, his car's not there anymore. And he asks you and you go, all right. Well, maybe maybe he took it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it's stashed at displaced place in Florida. Maybe it's not. Nobody saw so there's no eyewitnesses, and so your neighbor goes to court and he swears an oath, if it's sufficient under the law here that if he goes and he swears an oath before the Lord and says, "I swear to God I didn't take your car." you say, "It's good enough for me." That's just amazing to me. you know reminiscent of you know not so long ago you used to go into court, and if you were a witness, you put your hand on the Bible, and you said, I swear I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And I say, not so long ago, because we don't use that language anymore. We now say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, upon the pains and penalties of perjury. So we have another example, perhaps, of replacing God and having him less and less be part of our current you know, system of justice. Ironically, in a sense, just as Israel did over and over so many times throughout their history, right, replacing God with the law. Back then, of course, people still had a very healthy fear of the Lord and, and awe. right. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. And that word fear is this, this unbelievably heartfelt awe because back then they they believed he was real. So real that he was, a few chapters ago, drowning Egyptians in the Red Sea, right? So real that he was turning disobedient wives into pillars of salt. I mean, a God that you really feared swearing an oath in front of and keeping your word. Verse 12, but if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. So you're on vacation and I'm watching your sheep, and if one of them goes missing and my alibi is, whoa, a wolf must have gotten it, I better go out and find some pieces and parts that are left over so I can bring those in as evidence and say it wasn't me. And that way you don't have to pay restitution under the law. Verse 14, if anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. Six times in the verse, uh, in the verses we've read so far that word restitution or restore is mentioned. The Hebrew word is shalom. It means to make whole or complete. It sounds a lot like another Hebrew word that we're probably more familiar with. Shalom, which means peace or health or wholeness or safety or completeness. It's the same idea. Here's the idea behind all these commandments, okay? To achieve shalom, to achieve completeness, wholeness, you can't just say you're sorry. You have to pay back something because whenever... The fabric of human relationship is torn by sin, it's the restitution or the compensation that sews it back together again. You don't just get to get off scot-free. To do that cheapens the damage that was done to the other person. It cheapens the act that was committed. You see how even, again, in these laws here, God is foreshadowing our salvation. We can come to God all we want and say, I'm sorry, all we want, but we cannot have shalom with him until some price has been paid. Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe and paid a price we could never pay. Verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price and she shall be his wife. Jeremy says this all the time from the pulpit. Stop sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. In the New Testament, this is what they called fornication. So a young man and a lady get together, the hormones start raging, things get out of control, and they sleep together. What's the solution? He was to marry her. Notice it doesn't say if she got pregnant. It says if they consummated the relationship, he is supposed to find her father and offer to pay the bride price, the dowry, as if they were married because they are, in God's view, at that that point. So if he marries her because the father was losing his daughter, part of the workforce of his family, the man pays the dowry. So the message is, you wanna play, you gotta pay. Nowadays, even though dowries are not used, um, they're still used in some parts of the world, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, they're mostly defunct in the West. Sort of. Instead of paying a dowry, typically now a young man simply has to go to a father and ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. But what happens if the dad says, you're a creep, you're a loser, I don't want you within a 1,000 feet of my daughter, much less marrying her? Verse 17, if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price price for virgins. In other, words, he, in other words, he's still stuck with paying the dowry because that woman now is not pure, no longer a virgin. And again, in that society, that was an unbelievably paramount uh, thing that they placed a lot of emphasis on. And even if she finds another man, and she's honest with him, she, he may not have her or he may not want to pay the, the, the full bride price. And so the father was entitled to the full price in this. I would say that We've come a fair fair way in our current world from that way of thinking, right? These days, the world says, go out before you get married. Sleep around, get some sexual experience under your belt so that when you're married, you'll be able to bring some of this whole encyclopedia of sex tricks to the marriage with you and please your spouse and dazzle your partner with these things you've learned. I could do an entire sermon on the fallacies contained in that statement alone. But for tonight, let me just say this. God designed sex as an incredible gift that two young, inexperienced, loving, committed people were supposed to unwrap and discover and, and explore together, discovering new experiences and nuances and expressions over their 30 or 40 or 50 years, however long they had together. Think about Christmas. You don't just take a, a phone or a puppy or a PS4 and just hand it to someone, Right? The joy isn't just about what the gift is. The Half of the joy is in the suspense of waiting for the gift, the unwrapping of the gift, the discovering of the gift. Watch my kids peel the paper back really slow to see what's under there. And the other half of the joy is in watching the face of the person who gave you that gift, who chose it for you, who wrapped it for you, who saved it for you, and seeing their pleasure at giving it to you and seeing you enjoy it. Josh McDowell tells the story of a high school girl who was getting a lot of pressure from her uh, friends because they had all lost their Virginia, and She hadn't yet. She was getting a lot of peer pressure from them. And one day the pressure got to be too much and she finally turned and she looked at them and she said, any day that I want to, any day I want to, I can become like you. You can never again become like me. Yeah, whoa. Verse 18, do not allow a sorceress to live or a witch, some translations say. Now, again, as modern people, we may be tempted to gloss over this verse and call it ancient superstition. There's no such thing as sorcerers today. Not true. There are still many practices today that would fall under this prohibition. Astral projection, clairvoyance, reincarnation, fortune-telling, tarot cards, communing with spirits, seances, witchcraft, Wiccanism, amulets. I will, however, leave it up to each individual believer here in your own soul to determine whether or not it is acceptable in God's sight to say, bless you after someone sneezes, so to, as to drive out the evil spirits that would otherwise inhabit him. Right? That's where that practice comes from. And I'm not even touching Harry Potter. You're on your own on that one. gets worse I think that you have to have laws against these things, right? Verse 19, anyone who has sexual relations with an animal is to be put to death. Why do we have to have this? I'll tell you why. Because the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians practiced this. They believed that this was part of the activity that their gods were involved in, and therefore they practiced it as part of their worship. And without going into detail, there's a principle here that I think is very important. A person becomes like the God that they worship. David says that in Psalm 15 or 115. He says, they have eyes, noses, they feel, and everyone who worships them becomes like them. He's talking about idols. Idols have eyes, they have noses, they have feet, but they don't do anything. And those who worship them become like them. If your god is promiscuous, you're going to be promiscuous. Now again, are we nowadays worshipping other actual gods like Baal or Moloch or some of these other gods that they worshipped back then? No. But think about how many young women today worship Kim Kardashian or Kesha or Nicki Minaj. And when they do that, how do they dress? How do they act? How do they speak? You don't worship Kim Kardashian and act like Mother Teresa. And how many young men worship, I'm gonna date myself here because I've been out of the rap game for a long time, but at least in the 90s when I was still in the rap game, we had an entire generation of urban youth in the 80s and 90s who worshiped NWA and Ice-T and Ice Cube and Snoop Dogg, imitated their lifestyle, strapped on their gats, slang rocks in the corner, and they died by the thousands and drive by shootings all across the country. You become like the thing that you worship. And I pray, I pray that that's true for us. I pray that we all become like the one that we worship. I pray that every day, Lord, I would be less like me and more like you. Verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord must be destroyed. Idolatry became one of the greatest temptations for the children of Israel all throughout their history. It's why they were taken into captivity, it's why the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria. It was because of idolatry. And here's the problem: everyone was doing it. It's hard to be the only kid on the block that's a monotheist. Even adults fall prey to that. It's hard to separate ourselves from the world. Verse 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. So they're talking about foreigners that are in the land of Israel, um, what we would call resident aliens. Um, and this is, this is still true. My understanding is this is still true today. The, the law of Israel is if you're a resident alien, you still have the full protection of the laws of Israel, even though you are not a citizen. This is based on Verses you know, in the law, such as this. Verse 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives, your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. He's talking to his chosen people here. He's talking to the, the, the Israelites, the ones he plucked out and chose. And he says, as much as I love you, don't treat the widow and the fatherless this way. And all throughout Scripture, you see Jesus um, has the same attitude towards widows and orphans and the fatherless. Um, they hold a special place in God's heart, and I think that that is you know verses like this are beautiful. These people, right, the widows and the, the, the widows and the fatherless, they have no husband, they have no father to protect them, and so God, they don't have a human protector, so God steps in and says, "I will be your protector." Verse twenty-five. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest." He's not talking about every transaction. It specifically says, if you lend money to one among you who is needy, a loan for the, to the poor was there for one reason. It was to keep them from becoming absolutely destitute, and you weren't allowed to charge interest on that. It was supposed to be an interest-free loan. And I looked into this and I found this kind of interesting. These verses are the basis for a law, again, still in modern Judaism, called the Gemach, or in the plural, Gemachim, which is an interest-free loan to immigrants. So when a Jewish person would relocate um, during World War II or even today, if they had to relocate, they could get this institutional loan so that they could get established in their new place and they they wouldn't get to a place where they became destitute and they could pay it off interest-free until they got themselves settled. So again, not to take advantage of the poor. unless we think that Christians don't do this, I have seen letters sent by so-called Christian televangelists. Dear so-and-so, dear Bob, I've been thinking about you. The Lord has placed you on my mind. And I've been praying for you by name. I know you're experiencing financial difficulty right now. And I have a solution. If you just send me your money as a seed gift of faith, I will send you my specially scented anointing oil and my specially cut prayer cloth. You put that oil on that cloth and say this prayer for seven days and you will have, this will come back to you tenfold. Right? And so many poor have been taken advantage of in this way, and if you think that sorcerers are in trouble I can, sorcerers are in trouble, I can probably guarantee you those people using the veil of God to fleece folks like this, I am quite certain there is a special place for them uh, using the name of God to swindle his children. verse 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So he says, again, if you're, if you're, loaning, someone, if you're loaning money to somebody who's so poor, the only collateral they have is the shirt off their back, you can take it, but you've got to give it back to them at night. You've got to give them that cloak, because that's all they have to wrap themselves up and stay warm in. Deuteronomy actually goes a little bit further and it says, if a debtor has a hand mill or a millstone at home, you don't take those because they need those to produce food and to generate income with. And again, like I said earlier, remnants of this uh, resist and uh, persist even to this day. In the state of New Hampshire, if you sue sue somebody, you can get an attachment on their property, but there are exemptions on things that you are not allowed to attach. One of those exemptions is you are not allowed to attach $5,000 worth of the tools of their occupation. So if you sue a car mechanic, you can't put a lien on his tools because he needs those to earn the money to pay you back. And just because I think it's interesting, you also are not allowed to attach one cow, a yoke of oxen or a horse when required for farming, and four tons of hay. The wearing apparel necessary for the use of the debtor and the debtor's family. So you cannot, in New Hampshire at least, literally sue someone for the shirt off their back. One sewing machine. Comfortable beds and bedding necessary for the debtor, their spouse, and their children. One cook stove, one heating stove, and one refrigerator. $400 worth of provisions and fuel. The uniform, arms, and equipment of any officer or private in the militia. The debtor's interest in one pew in any meeting house in which the debtor usually worships, back in the day when you had like your, the Smith family pew or whatever at church, the Bibles, school books, and library of any debtor. I find it interesting that, again, the, the, at some level we understand, you know what, I'm not going to take your Bible from you. One hog and one pig and six sheep and the fleeces of same. Verse 28, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Does this ring a bell? In the New Testament, Paul, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, Acts 23, right? He's standing before the Sanhedrin and it says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth, smack that guy, shut him up, And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that that was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So Paul is showing that that is still in effect. So Paul didn't recognize Ananias and he apologized, right? He respected the office. How many times have you guys heard in the last six years? Not my president. I didn't vote for him. Guess what? If you didn't vote for him, he's still your president. And I hope that we all at least occasionally pray for the man who holds 336 million American lives, you know, control over them, and who has his finger on the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. I I would hope that we would pray for him occasionally. He needs it. Verse 29, do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. So give God your first fruits, the pick of the litter, the cream of the crop. Don't give them your leftovers. Verse 31, you are to be my holy people. So do not eat the meat of an animal torn by wild beasts. Throw it to the dogs. First of all, for ceremonial reasons, they weren't allowed to eat that meat because the blood had been drained out of it, like it says in Leviticus. But again, for practical purposes, if that meat has been torn by animals, it's already either likely begun to spoil or the animals have diseased it. And so God, again, through his law, you think it's just punishment, but he's protecting his people through the law. And that ends chapter 22. And you're like, oh, whew, we get to go home. So close. Oh, my gosh, are you going to keep talking? Yes. I thought we were done with the chapter. Why are we going to chapter 23? Well, the reason we're going to chapter 23 is because you have to remember that the Bible, when it was originally written, didn't have chapters and verses. Those weren't added until 1227 by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, who developed the scheme for dividing the Bible into chapters. And so sometimes, in my opinion, they got it wrong. So these nine verses in the beginning of chapter 23 thematically really belong in the end of chapter 22. Verse 1, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. I want to say this, the only way to obey this command is to put a stop to a false report. Doing nothing or remaining silent is to allow that false report to continue to circulate. That's why it was proper to ask and require proof of two witnesses in Deuteronomy of any report that was made. So when you hear that rumor going around the church, it's not enough to just pretend you didn't hear it. It's our job to step in and say, hold on, where did you get your information from? Do you mind if I ask where you heard that? Have you talked to that person about it? Have you gone to them? Verse 2, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. So it says not to follow a crowd to do evil. It has always been the nature of man to follow a crowd to do evil. Ever since Adam followed Eve, ever since the Israelites followed the crowd and worshiped the golden calf, ever since the crowd followed the rest of the crowd and shouted, crucify him. That is our nature, is to follow the crowd and to do things that we would not. There's an entire section of social psychology that talks about the things that human beings are willing to do when they're with other people that they are not willing to do when they're alone. Today we would call that the mob mentality. And the flip side of that G. Morgan Campbell is a Bible commentator from the turn of the last century. And he said, quote, the history of all right movements has been in the first place the history of lonely souls who having heard the authentic voice of God have stood alone or in small minorities. Verse four. If you come across your enemies, ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. This verse shows that goodness and kindness was not only required for those who you liked and loved, but for everyone. We don't need to be commanded to help a friend, but in this context, the principle is clear. How you feel about somebody does not determine your right and wrong behavior towards them. Sound familiar? It sounds a lot like Jesus saying, love your enemy. Verse 6, do not deny justice to the poor people in their lawsuits. God recognized, even back then, it was always easy. It was always going to be easy for the poor to be neglected in the administration of justice. So he told the Israelites, don't do that. Verse 7, have nothing to do with false charges, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. The promotion of truth was essential in God's law. God knew how much evil men would justify with lies. So we emphasize truth-telling in Israel's daily life and in their, and in their legal practices. Notice he also didn't say, I, don't put anyone to death. He recognizes that for Israel, that there are instances where justice requires the death of the wicked. Verse 8, do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you are foreigners in Egypt again. Does that sound familiar? Three of my boys are in trail life, which if you don't know is uh, when the Boy Scouts of America started getting real squirrely like 10 years ago with all their practices, trail life split off and it's like a Christian version of the Boy Scouts. There's a troop right over in Barrington. There's my plug. If you have or know of any eight to 18 year old boys who would like to have a character building organization to go to and learn some important life skills, I would highly, highly recommend it. Anyway, the meeting always starts off with the Trailman's Oath. On my honor, I will do my best to serve God and my country to respect authority, to be a good steward of creation, and to treat others as I want to be treated. Write that last part, to treat others as I want to be treated, sounds an awful lot like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sometimes we think the Old Testament law is different than the New Testament law, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His principles don't change. A lot of what we cover tonight deals with reparations, making things right. So i just want to leave you with this. In my house, when somebody does something wrong, where they disobey or they hurt another person, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there's a process for reconciliation. And it goes like this. And actually, before I even get to step one, I wanna preface this and say, anytime an interaction between you and somebody else goes poorly, ask yourselves, What part did I play in that interaction? Even if you are dead certain that the other person is absolutely at fault 100%, search your heart and say, is there any chance that they're only 99% at fault? Did I play any part in the rift? And if the answer is yes, then apologize for your part in it. Maybe not for the whole thing, but for your part in it. Because you can't change other people. You can change yourself. You can change how you react to them, and how, you, but you can't change them. So let's say it's not one of those. Let's say it's a pretty run-of-the-mill misunderstanding, miscommunication, fight, et cetera, and you bear a good part of the blame, or in the majority of the blame, or all the blame. Then what do you do? Step one, say you're sorry. I teach this to all my kids. Number one, say you're sorry. It is amazing how those two words Cut through so much. And isn't it amazing how hard those two words, how those seven letters sometimes are so hard to say. Oh, It grinds our gears. I don't want to say it. Step one, say you're sorry. Number two, say what it is you're apologizing for. Okay, Husbands, if you've been married for a while, you know this. Kids still naive when they're little. They think that they, my kids are real little. They think they can get away with just saying they're sorry. So the follow-up question is, "You're sorry for what? Exactly. Number three: show that you understand why what you did was, was bad, was wrong. Take ownership of it and show that you understand how it is that you caused the hurt. Number four: don't make excuses. I'm going to reference you back to the preference. Save the excuses for the next day. Save the, eh, but here yeah, you kind of had a part to play in this. Number five, say, it won't happen again. I'm sorry, here's what I did, I'm sorry for it, it's not gonna happen again. And number six, if possible, make reparations. I broke it, can I help you put it back together? I know I spilled on your shirt that I was borrowing, I'll pay for the dry cleaning. I scratched your car dead, I'll pay for the body work, okay? Offer to pay the price to make it right. Because there's a price to make it right. That's what God did for you. Let's pray. (sighs) Father God, I realize that I am sinful and that I have broken your commands. I haven't loved you above all else. And I don't love my neighbor nearly as much as I love myself. I have at times been selfish and arrogant, Lord, and I ask for your mercy and forgiveness. I place my trust in the fact that Jesus died and shed his blood for my sin. Thank you. Such love, Father, such sacrifices beyond imagining. I can scarcely begin to grasp the depth and the scope and the width and the breadth of your love for us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we have been drawn together by one baptism into one faith, serving one Lord and one Savior in this church. Please do not let us tear away from one another through division or harsh words. I pray that your peace would embrace our differences. Preserve us in unity as one body in Jesus. Thank you that while we were still sinners, still your enemies, we were reconciled to you through the death of your Son. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.